open, outspoken. It's ophthalmology off the grid. An honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Blake Williamson. I'm Gary Wirtz. Welcome to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. In this episode, Drs. Blake Williamson and Gary Wirtz continue the theme of the 2023 season to focus on building a business and building a brand. Dr. James Loden joins to share insights into his career and his experience building his practice. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in ophthalmology. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid, the 2023 season. This is uh, episode number two, uh, and I got uh, Gary Wirtz, the man, the myth, with me. Uh, we're back at it, um, as you as you know from our first episode, and it's going to be a really fun season. And, and I love how we're kind of staying focused with the theme of building your business, building your brand, and kind of um, having everything revolve around that central idea. Guests will change, ideas will change, experiences will change. But Gary, I feel like um, you know we had to come up with a uh, go out with a or, or start with a bang rather uh, with our first guest here, uh, and, and I think we picked someone that's going to you know people are going to like. Absolutely. I'm so excited to kick this season off with our our friend, our mentor, our big brother in ophthalmology, Dr. Jim Loden. Uh, I think everyone knows Jim, but uh, he is um, a fantastic cataract refractive surgeon in Nashville, Tennessee. I, you know, we're talking about building your brand and building your business. And, you know, I'm just going to ask you, Blake, when you think of Jim Loden, what do you, what do you think of? We're going to embarrass Jim here for a second. What do you, what do you think of when you think of Jim? And I'll tell yes. you what I think. Yeah. So I'm going to kind of go deep with it. Like, like, I think that there's stuff that's given like great surgeon, you know, people know about his skills, people know about the practice he's built, people know about his family, people know about those things, but like things that you may not know that I recognize, it, there's really two things that I've picked up on it, it, sort of learning from him and, and becoming a, a friend and mentee. Uh, and that is number, number, number one, there's no bullshit with Jim, you know, like, like if he, if he, if he hears something on the podium, like he will stand up at the mic and call out. And I, I feel like I'm not quite there yet. I don't have the gravitas that maybe like in 10 years, I can like get up there. But if someone's saying something, even if I don't agree with it, I'm kind of like, eh, that, that dude or that gal has been practicing for 30 years. I'm gonna let it slide, you know, but Jim will get up and say something. And I look up to that. And the second thing I think about is he's disciplined. And what I mean about that is like, like when I go sit down, I go sit down in a meeting, I try to always sit next to him if I can. And I'm in like swim trunks that are still wet from the pool at Caribbean Eye. And I'm in like flops, you know, and he's there and he's got his notepad out and he's like making notes. He's actively making notes. And it makes me feel so bad about myself because I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm just, you know, five, six, seven years in, whatever it is. And I'm just kind of like acting like I, I don't, I, I know everything, no big deal. Yet he's sitting there making notes. And I always have noticed that about him. He's disciplined in his learning. Yeah, I, I will say this. And Jim, we'll get your thoughts on, on what has uh, made you successful and, and, and how you can help people maybe uh, emulate your success. But the, I think when I think of Jim, again, same thing, family man, you know, loves his boys, loves hunting, loves ophthalmology, he's given back so much. But, you know, probably one of the things I think of, and this may surprise some people, is I think of a self-made man, a guy who who basically had to take on the entire world 
and has come out the other side better for it. And Jim, maybe we'll get into that. Maybe that's a good jumping off point. But, um, you know, when I first met you, I just sort of knew your dad was an ophthalmologist. And I just kind of figured that you had kind of fallen into that practice and life had been grand. And, you know, you sort of make assumptions about people. But, you know, we've had some really deep and long conversations over many, many years. And so that part of your story, I'm not sure everybody knows, and you don't have to necessarily go deep into it. But why don't you tell us a little bit about your just as we start here, what your philosophy was starting in residency about how you're going to basically try to take on the world. I mean, I think that, that you know, share what you want, but, um, you know, you were in a tough spot and you were basically forced to take on the world. And uh, that is not an easy thing for someone in your shoes. So that's maybe where, where we'll start. Yeah, life changed for me in April of 1990. Uh Blake, Blake's dad was friends with my dad. My dad was an eye surgeon in Nashville. And on the treadmill one night, he rolled over dead of a heart attack. And we really didn't have the practice set up with a lot of good management. And thankfully, this was prior to the major cuts on cataract surgery. We were able to sell the practice. I was in my second year of med school at the time. I had no idea how to manage a practice. My sister was a business finance person. She had no idea how to manage a practice. Mom didn't. So we were pretty much forced to sell the practice at that point. And then I kind of looked around for a few years. Do I want to do anesthesia? Do I want to do some other surgical subspecialty? And I came back to the realization I, that I'd always wanted since high school is I was going to be an ophthalmologist. So I became an ophthalmologist in spite of it all. But then I had to compete once I moved back to Nashville, as Gary and Blake know, uh, my dad's old practice was my number one competitor and they were big time competitors. They're still good competitors right now, uh, still competing against them 25 years later, you know, but uh, like Gary said, we came out the other side and everything's been great and we've had a lot of fun doing it. Yeah, Blake, isn't that crazy? I mean, think about that just for a second. That's unbelievable. Yeah, it's completely unbelievable. And, and you know, um, it, it's it's funny, you know, I always, I always love to hear my dad's story about about Jim's dad, you know, because they were tight. And, uh, and and your boys look just like him, too. Uh, my dad always comments on that. But I don't know if I could have done it like you did, especially, you know, come, you were so young, you were in med school. It's not like it was like your first or second year in practice and you can pull yourself up by the bootstraps, take on his volume and roll. You didn't know. You didn't even know what you didn't know back then. So. Uh, the fact that you were able to persevere and, and have, you know, the, the practice that everyone looks to as the platform practice in your area is amazing. And Blake, you said something really important then. You don't know what you don't know, right? I remember coming out of fellowship, uh, my cornea fellowship with Frank Price, and going to work for a PRG practice for a couple of years and then buying them out. I still, even three years in, had no clue how to manage a business or how to manage cost and productivity. Those those were just enigmas that we, you just have to learn the terrible school hard knocks, right? Uh, unless you have a dad that, or a mentor or a great management team, uh, there's, there's going to be a little bit of pain you have to go through along the way. Yeah, it's one of those things, you're, you're, you're a kid until you have kids. Uh, and you don't know how, how to run a business until you're forced to run a business. You know, if, if uh, 
you know, luckily I have a, a CEO administrator who's my brother, you know, and so it's great. But uh, there's a lot of things that I don't know that I don't know, you know, and, and if something happened to him, God forbid, I'd have to learn that. So, so Gary, I thought in that vein, maybe we kind of start off with one of our main questions uh, of the season that I think we're going to try to ask everybody uh, starting off. And, and, and uh, you know, really, Jim, it's just, you know, from a high level, what would you consider to be one of your biggest successes uh, in business? What, what's, a, what's a great decision you made? Um, or experienced? What's the, one of the best decisions you've made that, that's related to your business in ophthalmology? Yeah, that, that question's a layup for me right there, Blake. There, in 2007, I had the opportunity, I was introduced to a practice, again, a practice I'd known uh, through my dad and his friends years ago in the uh, late 80s and early 90s, it had been bought up by PRG and they'd kind of run it into the ground by the uh, mid nineties and wasn't doing as well. And then by 2007, the business was totally under underwater. They were going to close the doors. This was a practice over in West Tennessee, about two hours West of Nashville in a little town called Paris, Tennessee. And I bought the real estate, the surgery center and the practice and Nowadays, I have right at 100% ROI on that investment. So I'm just like, man, how could I find four or five, six more of these, right? Where uh, you take a practice that was doing 250 cataracts a year and you turn it into a practice that does about 1950 a year in a small two-room uh, two ASC. Uh, you can churn, burn, and do it really efficiently in that scenario in a rural area. And that's that's been a great investment for me. I, I, I wish I could make more, uh, find better investments like that. Yeah, don't you think that's sort of what private equity is licking their chops on? You know, they see deals like this and they think, okay, we can we can sort of, you know, find margin there. But I, I think the question is like, those are hard to find. You know, I'm not sure if that fell into your lap, um, but, you know, again, that was a big decision, I'm sure. Even though it's, you know, on the back end, you've had a great return on investment. You know, it takes a little while to figure out how to even vet a good deal. So as we're talking about, you know, building your business, um, can you walk us through when you're, you know, you've said things to me in passing like, Gary, you just got to get a Walgreens on a corner and do, do a triple net lease and and Buddha bada bing, Bob's your uncle, and, and you make a lot of money on that. And I have no idea what any of that means, right? So, like, Jim, when you're when you're vetting a deal, okay, for the younger ones who are, you know, trying to figure out their head from a hole in the ground and how to, you know, not just do a capsulotomy, but how to get paid for it. How do you like how did you vet that deal? And as you're building your business, how do you try to figure out like, does this align with my goals? Am I gonna, you know, what is your process? I'm very to me, this is a personal question. How I'm very curious, how do you go about that? Yeah, so one of the things I've learned uh, is every time I step out of my real skill set, I get burned, right? I endure a lot of pain. Uh, I opened an optical business about seven years ago, and we're just now getting rid of the pain right now, right? It was a lot of cash flow loss getting it up and going. We had the wrong management team in. Uh, so I stepped out of my real box of cataract refractive right there, and it's all going to work out great, right? Uh, I've overbuilt buildings that have taken years to get leased where I'm having to fund them. Uh, but yet 
now seven years later, I just got my uh, uh, appraisal back on the building because we're using the building for collateral for a new ASC loan. And I'm up multiple seven figures, right? So you, you sit there and say, boy, the appreciating value of picking a good spot in a good progressive city like Nashville is a great thing, right? So if you're going into, I think a lot of opportunities is law, are lost sometimes because people are so static in their thought process that I have to live here or I have to live there, right? And I want to be 15 minutes from work. Well, uh, next week, I'm going to drive two hours to Paris, Tennessee, spend the night, but I'm going to do 80 cataracts and probably 30 yags in two days, right? Well, there's not a lot of people that get to do 80 cataracts in two days, right? Now, it's a little uncomfortable. You're getting out of your comfort zone. You're having to drive two hours to do it, right? Uh, you have to be willing to make some sacrifices on these deals. Uh, if you're just looking at the deal, you have to build in, an, one of my big tips is you have to build in enough cash flow on your initial loan that you can operate however many months you think it's going to take to hit profitability, right? It may take a year, it may take two years, right? When you're buying something that's totally uh, cash flow negative, only doing 250 cataracts a year, you know you're going to have to hit 800 uh, really to be any chance of profitability. Maybe 700, you could break even, but you really need to hit that 800. You've got to figure out how long is it going to take me to hit 800, right? How many employees am I going to have to have? What's What are my salaries? What's my run rate for this year going to be? What's my rent going to be this year? Uh, and you build that into your loans so that you have enough time and you don't end up just burning out. You see this in the restaurant business quite often, right? They just don't have enough capital on hand to get their brand built in time and they're closing their doors. So that, that's one of my big tips is always put, always go borrow a little bit more money than you need to on the front end so that you're not scrambling for cash on the back end. The other thing you have to do is just really be willing to sacrifice. Uh, when I first started my practice, I took no salary for six months. I took 30,000 the next six months and I took 60,000 entirety of the second year I was in practice, right? I pumped all the other cash flow into marketing, branding and uh, building the practice, right? So a lot of people that simply don't want to go and say, I'm going to live on $30,000 like I did as a resident uh, when you're out in private practice, right? And, and put that money back into the company. You have to be willing to suffer a little pain and put that money back into the company to make money on the, on the big time scale. Yeah, I, th I think that one of the big things there, one of the big tips is that the, the business is a li living, breathing organism and you have to feed the business. So, you know, the way we do our, 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 for our partners, you know, we get our dividends quarterly uh, and there's a large chunk of it that we leave in the bank account, in the operating account. And we look at that and it's a big number. And I think to myself, man, I own a big percentage of that. I'd like for that to be in my bank account, but that's the wrong way to look at it because, you know, COVID could happen, boom, and you need that cash flow. And, you know, my brother always talks about how, you know, he's had to have a cash call from the partners before. And it's easy to say, well, the partners will each have a line of credit at the bank. But if you go to that partner and you say, hey, you know what? I need $60,000 on Tuesday. That's rough, you know? And so, 
by keeping cash in the business, you know, I think that's a, a huge tip. And the other thing that you pointed out that I like is that talk about buying another smaller practice instead of just hanging a shingle and just trying to start create something out of nothing. You know, for, for those listeners who are thinking about starting their own practice, you know, I get asked all the time, like, what about just, you know, hanging a shingle and just creating something out of thin air? I said, man, that is tough to do. What I would do is go buy an existing practice, specifically an ODs practice that you, a medical minded OD that could be quite, that's quite busy and might, they might refer 150 cataracts a year to their ophthalmologist, but I bet you there's a thousand in there and there's diabetics yeah. in there and there's glaucoma patients in there and there's everything else that you'd mind as an aggressive surgeon who's wanting to take care of these people the right way, surgically minded physician, you know, and, and you could pick up an OD practice uh, for not as not, not a huge multiple and, and really turn that into something big, you know. That's a that's a really valid statement, Blake. Uh, one of the hardest things to do is a de novo opening. I've done that one time and it hit, it was a six year, five to six year process to get cash flow positive. We, we were having to pump money into it for the first five years. It was painful. Uh, I learned a tough lesson on that. So I totally agree with you. Go out, buy a lower volume MD or a high volume OD practice. And each of these, I bought three MD practices in the last 25 years and all of them were low volume and we turned them into high volume, right? But you had to have that footprint to work with initially to start out. You had to have some base of patients to start with. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, Peter Thiel has a book called Zero to One. And it's saying, you know, it's much harder to create something that doesn't exist than it is to scale something that does exist. So for folks who are, you know, looking for a good book about innovating or starting something up, Zero to One is a great book. Um, while we got you on here, we want to go through a couple more questions, if that's okay. Um, one thing I'd like to know is how did you find your niche? You know, you talked about like stepping outside of your niche and in, in sort of cataract refractive. What drew you to cataract refractive? How did you know it was sort of where you wanted to go? And how did you sort of build your brand in Nashville, a very competitive city with a lot of world-class surgeons? How did you, how are you able to compete there and find your niche? It's a little bit genetics, Gary. Uh, I'm a little bit like Blake, you know, I'm second generation and had a, had a dad with powerful personality as well, who is uh, very business-minded as well. I wish I'd had more time to get the download from him as you and I have talked about before in other podcasts. Uh, I wish I'd had that knowledge. I feel like there's a whole lot of mistakes I wouldn't have had to learn the hard way. But uh, just my dad and his mentors, you know, uh, getting to grow up around guys like Jim Gills and uh, Ralph Berkeley and just some of these big legends in ophthalmology that have been just great examples in my life. Seeing them, I mean, you're in, I, I was probably 20 years old when dad sent me down to hang out with Gills for a few days. And man, I was exhausted. I was, I was about to fall out after being with him for three days, you know, getting up at 4.30 in the morning, getting home at 10 at night and 50 surgeries and 50 pre-ops and 50 post-ops. And we then had to go ride bicycles home, you know, it's like, man, this is intense. So I had a lot of people just setting a stage for me is this is, this is what it looks like, right. From a really uh, high view and uh, high competitive environment. So I think that made it less intimidating going back into the Nashville market. Right. And 
I, I was willing to make those sacrifices on the front end. I was willing to buy TV ads instead of cars and houses, right? Uh, that That's a lot of it, is being having that ability to say, I'm going to invest in the business and I'm not going to buy stuff, right? I'm going to put it into something that's going to build for a greater good. I have this, this saying <laughs> to my family, you know, they, they're sick of me hearing it. But I say, listen, everything we buy is just future garbage because I get sick of taking a load of stuff to Goodwill that has come in from Amazon last year. I'm like, let's, let's build things that are going to actually appreciate. And uh, so, yeah, we don't need more stuff. Yeah, the, only, ahead, the, only, the only things worth buying are LASIK and childcare. The two most important <laughs> things in the world. Exactly. You'll, ne you'll, you'll never say you're sorry for buying LASIK or childcare. Jim, you've made a lot of great decisions, but I bet you made some bad ones. Tell me about like your worst decision. What, what was what was one of the worst business things that you had done that you wish you could take back? Oh, I, I, the number one by far, no questions, is uh, selling my first surgery center, part of it to a surgery center management company. I won't use their name. I don't want to be liable for anything. But let me tell you what these companies do. They don't do anything. They are simply buying cash flow. It's all false, hollow promises. You end up having to manage the company. You end up having to pay for the marketing within your practice to grow their business and they get 51%. You're doing all the work and all they're doing is providing some cash. Well, let me tell you what, you're much better off going and getting a loan than giving up 51% of a company. Uh, that's just a terrible decision. I had terrible advisors. Uh, the money, when I, I was 40 years old, I'm uh, 57 now. You know, you get shown a multiple seven-figure number when you're 40 years old and you're like, oh man, wow, sure, I'm there, right? Right. Uh, it was a horrid decision. It cost me multiple, multiple seven figures. and. <laughs> being in that deal and getting out of that deal. So uh, that that was by far the most expensive disaster I've ever had. That, yeah, it's so hard. And I, and I also, again, we bring in private equity, but that that's something I sort of wonder about if, the, if that's what our colleagues who have done private equity and nothing against it. I mean, if it's, a, if it works for your practice, great. And I think in some ways, they're staying in and really wanting to sort of grow organically and, and build for the future. So I don't know that it's exactly like your deal, but it does seem like you're just sort of taking out a multiple, which is like a, a loan against your future earnings. Correct. Uh, That's exactly what it is. Right. And, and you calculate that up, right? At, at what point, how many years down the road is your break even point? And do I think I would be doing as well or better at than I am currently at this particular time in space, right? And there are multiples that do make it quite appealing, right? I mean, you just have to look at that and look at it from an actuarial standpoint. But for anybody who's uh, younger, my advice is just have a lot of confidence and go in there. And if you, you have to have insight, are you really good at surgery? Are you good at patient care, right? Do your patients like you? Do your staff, does your staff uh, enjoy working for you? And do you really like getting out there and working the business? If you do, 
you're going to be quite successful and you really don't need to partner up with other people on this, right? You need to just go out there and get along. But you do, one of the things I find so interesting is there's a lot of adversity to signing a personal guarantee. And to get to my level, you have to be willing to sign multiple seven-figure personal guarantees, right? A lot of people just aren't comfortable with that, right? Because if you fail, you're going to lose it all, right? It's going to go. They're going to take it from you. You sign the line, right? right? But I'm not planning on that happening. So you, you have to have to have a comfort zone with some risk. To, to that end, you know, Blake, I'm sure you get calls like this. And I love... I, I love being available for younger surgeons who feel comfortable enough to give me a call and say, Hey, I'm, I'm going through this scenario or I'm trying to to buy in, or I'm trying to, you know, get a, um, you know, get a deal going with so-and-so person. How what would you advise me? And it always comes down to, you know, what's fair. Like the practice always wants the young doc to, you know, put in their time and, and pay probably more than they want to pay. And the young doc is always sort of stuck in this, you know, conundrum of do I just sort of take it on the nose and go work for this person, maybe get a, you know, maybe get a partnership deal down the road, or do I hang a shingle or, you know, and they're sort of feel stuck. When you, when Jim, when you have these conversations with people, I mean, do you feel like the conversation has just changed where people expect to have, you know, like a three hundred thousand dollar job right out of residency where they basically just show up and do work and just get paid and you know like not putting in a lot of that sweat equity like like you did i mean what what do you if you had this conversation with a young doc who's maybe a couple years out of residency they're maybe disenfranchised with their first practice and looking to either move or start their own practice how do you counsel them about making that decision well first thing i, I think you said is the disenfranchised doctor right that's the easiest one to have a great conversation with. Someone straight out of school who doesn't know what they don't know is really difficult to have this conversation with. They do seem to feel entitled to, I want this big salary. And by the way, I want to be off at noon on Friday. And I don't really want to see LASIK post-ops on Saturday morning, right? Well, I'm turn 58 next month and I'm still going to be seeing LASIK post-ops this Saturday morning, right? Uh, so I really think there's a little bit of an entitlement out there and, and you just have to understand what do you want, right? Do you want a no-risk job where you're going to have a good salary and a good lifestyle or do you want to take on risk and invest and then maybe you get to fly to the ACOS meeting on your own plane instead of sit in line at the Southwest counter, right? It's all about what you want and what your long-term goals are, but you're never going to get big without risk. And, and that I think that's the biggest thing people have to get comfortable with is being willing to lay that big stack of cash down on the table and say, I'm willing to be all in, right? And I think it, it depends on, you know, again, like you said, who it is, who you are, and you know who you are. There's a lot of people listening to this podcast who say, sheesh, I really don't want to drive two hours and do 80 cataracts in two days. That's it, a lot, right? A lot, people, a lot of people who listen to this, a lot of them, they actually couldn't. And even if they could do it, uh, they don't want to do that, right? And that's okay. Right. That's why there's people like them and people like us. And 
to us, we think, I mean, we just, we, we have a lot in common. And so we gravitate towards that, but a lot of folks just aren't built that way and that's okay. So I think the question changes depending on who you're talking to. So um, Jim, maybe in these last couple of minutes here, I just wanted to ask you uh, just a high level question about success. You know, how do you, how do you kind of define success now at 57, 58 years old? And, and, and has that changed from what you thought when you were 40? Uh, what does oh, success yeah. mean to you now? You know, how's it changed over time? Yeah, I think uh, getting married at 37 and kids at 40 and then finally growing up a little bit changed my view of success, Blake. Uh, I think in the early days, it was how fast can I build? How many cases can I do per hour? How much you know, gross revenue can I generate per unit of time? How big can I make my practice, right? That's now morphed into all of that's fun and it's a measuring stick of work for all of us A-type super competitive people. But yet success now is Heather, my wife, my two boys, James and Reed, and my faith, right? And we just enjoy our time together the, the work is a way for us to have an income stream that we can enjoy our time together. I try not to let work dominate our lives. Uh, I try not to be a workaholic, even though I am. Uh, I try to make sure I factor in time for uh, my wife and my children and my church time. But that, that think that's the real way that life has changed at uh 57, almost 58 now that uh, my dad died at 59. I'm acutely aware of my age right now that life is temporal. We're all going to leave. We're not getting out of here uh, alive. So enjoy that time and, and don't become just totally obsessed with your work and worrying. And uh, that that's my summary of where success is in my life now. Yeah, that is awesome. I don't know that you could have much better uh, definition. I know we all sort of have, you know, different ways we sort of measure success, but I love, I love that. I will say, um, you know, I'm proud to know you. I'm proud to know you as a mentor uh, surgically and in business, but also as a mentor, just as like a husband and as a father and, you know, someone that I get a chance to, to bounce ideas off of, not just ophthalmology. So Blake, any any parting words uh, before we wrap this up? Man, I just appreciate your time and uh, looking forward to watch how Tennessee does uh, coming down the stretch uh, this season in uh, basketball, shooting some good hoops right now. I'm not sure it's going to be as good as our football season in, Blake. (laughs) Thank you so much, Jim. We'll see you next time. All right, guys. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. And thank you to our co-hosts, Drs. Blake Williamson and Gary Wirtz, and our guest, Dr. James Loden. Tune in next time for a further discussion of the business of ophthalmology.